If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to the book of 1 Peter. As we begin yet another exciting journey through God's Word together. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Our text this morning will be 1 Peter, verses 1 and 2, but I will read a bit more so that we have some context and the beginnings of the flavor of this great letter. Hear now the word of the Lord that is holy, sufficient, and completely authoritative. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you, are, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this word from Your Apostle, Peter. We pray, Lord, that it would guide us into all truth, that it would show us more of who You are, that it would convict us of sin, and encourage us on to love and good deeds. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. When we try and get the best understanding or feeling for an event that has happened or a circumstance, I can think of no better way to do that but than to go to someone who has been there, who's done it. If I want to find about what battle or war is like, I talk to a soldier, not a professor. If I want to learn about fixing cars, I talk to a mechanic, not a dentist. We desire to understand not just the manual or the how-to of doing something, especially as it becomes more and more important to us, but we desire to get the fervor, the energy, the insight that comes from someone who's been there. After all, 
Who gives better advice about parenting than a parent? Not a single person. Or about married life than someone who's married? Not a child. Right? And that's true in mundane and secular things, but it's also very, very true with the Word of God. You see, we're coming to a new book here, and there is some rhyme and reason to the way we've been going. We looked first at Galatians and the gospel of God's grace, and then we looked at Ecclesiastes and a very evangelistic and worldview-minded book. And now we're going to look at a very pastoral book. Because you see, we're going to get advice on the Christian life from a pastor, Peter. Peter is someone who has been there. And he's giving his thoughts, his advice, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to a people who need it. There are people who are struggling. They're in trouble. They are having difficulties in their society. They're being ostracized and shunned. Oftentimes, we we think of Christians being persecuted as being nailed up on wooden stakes and set afire or thrown to the lions. But you see, persecution doesn't often begin that way. Difficulties in the Christian life often come with being passed over for promotion, not being invited to a social event, being talked about behind your back. And we're dealing with a time here in which Peter is writing in which that kind of persecution is going on. And it will build... And it will grow. And these people that Peter is writing to have these difficulties. And so they go to Peter for advice and help and encouragement. You see, they're in a society that is growing increasingly frustrated with their ability to name Jesus as Lord and to live lives that are separate and distinct from those around them. Does that sound familiar? It should. Because it pretty much describes... 21st century America. And so what I would like us to do today is to see the forest. We're going to get down and look at the first great glorious tree next week, the doctrine of election. But what I want us to do is to see the big picture here. And so I know we give you these sermon notes here. If there ever was a time you thought about taking notes, today might be good because you might even want to shove it in your Bible and bring it out each week because this big picture affects how we see each of these individual verses. And what I'd like us to see this morning are three simple things. First, I'd like us to see Peter, the man who wrote this letter, who he was, and how it affected his views and and his uh, inspiration to write this. Then I'd like us to see the pilgrims. As soon as I say that word, many of you are thinking of people walking around with starched collars and funny black hats, big gold buckles. No, there's no turkey for snack time. These are the original pilgrims. The people of God in the first century. And then I'd like us to see the purpose or the reason why Peter wrote this letter. He didn't just get up one afternoon and say, well, there's not much to do. My schedule's light this week. I think I'll pop off a letter. No, there was a specific reason why he wrote this. And so first then, let us take a look at who this man is, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he tells us in chapter 1 and verse 1. And this begins to give us a biblical picture of who Peter is. Words are important. You see, in the old days, the really old days, yes, even kids way before TV and radio, when people wrote letters, 
they had to write down at the top who they were. Because, you see, they didn't have a U.S. Postal Service. They didn't have envelopes, even, usually, where they put their name and address up in the top left corner and mailed it off. If you wanted someone who was reading your letter to know who you were, you put it in your greeting. And so you did more than just say, Hi, it's Peter. Because they didn't really use last names then. You would describe who you were in a way in which people would say, Oh, I know exactly who this is. And that's what Peter does. And interestingly, he describes himself right off the bat as an apostle. That is, one of the twelve disciples who were sent out by the Lord Jesus Christ. The word apostle is just simply an English carryover of a Greek word that means the guy who was sent out. And in this case, it becomes even clearer because it's the guy who was sent out by Jesus Christ. Because he's not just an apostle, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And one thing that we need to realize is that this office of apostle is a very important one. It is a significant one. It is the only office that is described that way, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We don't read of teachers of Jesus Christ. We don't read of elders of Jesus Christ. We read of all these other offices. But this office is distinct and important. Peter is an apostle. But he's not just an apostle. He is one of the three apostles that we might call the inner ring of Jesus' company. Right? If you're thinking of apostles, if in true Jeopardy fashion I fire off at you and I say, give me the twelve apostles, you're probably going to start Peter, James, John. Right? Why? Because they're the ones that are referred to most by name. They are the inner circle. When Jesus does things of great significance, he takes Peter and James and John with him. They go with him to the Mount of Transfiguration. They go with him into the Garden of Gethsemane. So you see, Peter is an apostle. He is a man with great authority. He's an apostle of the living God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is one of his inner circle, as it were. But that's not all of who he is. You see, Peter also describes himself a bit later in the letter, in chapter 5, in a different fashion. He calls himself a fellow elder, which is a very different sort of term. If apostle lifts Peter up, fellow elder makes him just like one of us. He says, I exhort those elders that are among you who are just like me. They're a fellow elder. You know those guys who are out there laboring for the kingdom of God. We might say that there's a very real sense, biblically speaking, in which Peter is not very different from our own elders here. They are fellow elders with Peter. They are men who labor for the kingdom of God. Men who make mistakes, as Peter made mistakes. Men who pray for the people of God, as Peter did. Men who need your prayers, as Peter did his people. You see, this is a part of ministry. It is not something that comes from on high down. It is found among the people. And even one so exalted as Peter is not offended to place himself on the same levels with others. But he goes even further than that in another place. If you're turning pages in your Bible, turn a page beyond 1 Peter 5 to 2 Peter where in chapter 1 he describes himself as Simon Peter, a servant and apostle. And it is to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. 
that he describes himself. So now he's an apostle, but he's also a fellow elder. But now he's also describing himself as a recipient of God's grace. He's obtained the same kind of faith that you have. Think about that. You have the same kind of faith that Peter had. You see, Peter is not afraid to link his apostleship with his servanthood. The word there, actually, in the Greek, as you know, means slave. He's not afraid to do that at all. This is the biblical picture of Peter. And notice that it is a balanced picture. It is not off on either end of the scale. This is a man who is authoritative and powerful, yet we can identify with. So when we hear his words, we hear the authority of an apostle of Jesus Christ, but also the tenderness of a shepherd and a pastor. That should make you feel very encouraged as we go through this letter. You see, this is just like Peter himself. He's a very complex picture. It's interesting that we probably know more about Peter than any other figure in the New Testament except our Lord Jesus Christ. We have a lot more written from Paul. But we really don't get as much of the daily Paul as we do Peter, especially over as long of a period of time. We see Paul throughout the book of Acts doing various things, but we don't really see him ministering in the churches. We don't really see him dealing with, for example, the difficulties that he describes in Romans 7. We don't really see that. We read from him. With Peter, it's sort of all hanging out there. We see him daily doing great things, doing stupid things throughout the Gospels. He's a He's a complex figure. He's not like John, that if I were to say to you, who's John? You'd say, that's the apostle of love. Or who's Peter? He's the great missionary. No. Or excuse me, who's Paul? He's the great missionary. This is Peter. He's sometimes great, sometimes not so great. And we want to avoid kind of caricatures that come up in thinking about Peter. You see, Rome would have us believe that Peter is some sort of Superman who walked around before they had neon lights with a halo around his head, in white shining robes all the time that never got dirty. And he just thought, and people did what he thought. And he was in charge of everything, and he was like the king of the church. No. But also, we don't want to go the other extreme and denigrate Peter, because we're annoyed by what the Roman Catholics have done. Instead, we we may say, Peter's not that important. He really doesn't matter. Let's focus on Paul, or let's focus on Luke. No, he is a complex figure. He is one who experiences the heights of the Christian life and the depths of the Christian life. Think about Peter. You see the grace of God shining on him in things such as his great confession in Matthew 16 and Mark 8. And then you see him fall to the depths, failing. We see great zeal and eagerness from Peter. When the soldiers come out, Peter's the first one to take his sword out and he's ready to take on the whole lot. And then we see him a little bit later, he's afraid of a slave girl around a fire. You see, he's a very complex person. And isn't this kind of like who we are? We like to think that we are these great Christian warriors all the time, ready to take on the world. And then we're reminded that we're not as strong as we think we are. And our temptation is to say, well, we're not really real Christians or we're not good Christians. If we could only be good and faithful Christians like Pastor and Mrs. Carroll. 
labored as missionaries for years. We're not that good. No. You see, Peter lets us know that we have in our Christian life times of glory and times of humility, times of eagerness and zeal and times of reluctance. And it is one of the ways that God uses to shape us and build us in the image of his Son. We see examples of this. For example, in the great confession that Peter makes in Matthew 16, Jesus comes up to the disciples and he says, who do they say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And we get the impression from the text that all of the apostles are all of one mind, but it's Peter who comes forward and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And this great confession becomes the bedrock on which the church is built. It is so important that Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter. This is why Rome takes this and runs with it. It makes Peter the first pope. But it is an incredibly important confession. It is perhaps one of the greatest moments of faith up until that point in the Gospels. Right? And then, sometimes we forget that about ten verses later... As Jesus says, great confession, let me tell you about what that means that I'm the Messiah. I'm going to die and rise again. And Peter says, no way! You're wrong, Jesus. Wait a minute. Peter's just called him the son of the living God, and now he's correcting him? And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. In just a short span of time, Peter goes from saying words that flesh and blood is not given to him, but my father above, Jesus says, to speaking the words of the devil. Peter stumbles a bit. You ever feel like that when you put your foot in your mouth? You're trying to comfort someone, and you say something, and it's, oh. Or you're sure you can describe something in the Bible right, and you mess it all up, and you have to go back later words and fix it. You see, this is what the Christian life is like. See, we can be troubled by thinking that the Christian life is one slow, steady way of progress toward glory, right? It may be slow, but we're always getting a little bit better all the time. Our prayer life is always getting a little bit better all the time. Beloved, if that's what you're thinking, you need to wise up. Because Peter shows us that the Christian life is more like a roller coaster. It goes forward, but it has big ups and big downs. And generally speaking, it does go up by God's grace. But in the midst of that general trend of up, it's a little bit like the stock market. It's up, down, up, down, way up, a little bit down, way down, a little bit up. That's what the Christian life is like. And so we could take encouragement from Peter. This is a balanced picture. But it's also an identifiable picture. It is something we can identify with. Peter is the sort of guy who learned by doing things. Is that you? They're sitting in the boat out on the sea. And something comes toward the apostles. It's not even someone. They're not sure if it's even a a person or a thing or a ghost. And they look. And they're all afraid. And Peter thinks it's Jesus. And he responds and he says, if that's you, Lord, tell me and I'll come out and come see you. Now think about that. He's in a boat in the middle of a lake. And he steps out of the boat and walks on water. He's not thinking that through. He's learning it as he goes along. 
He's doing it in faith. His focus is solely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in sort of typical Peter fashion, he's out there about a minute and a half and he looks around and he just starts to get scared and he starts to sink. Does that describe your Christian life at times? You set out on some bold course of faith. Maybe it's a new job. Maybe it's you're finally going to do family worship. Maybe it's you are going to commit to this ministry. And a little bit of the ways in, you look around and the waves seem a little higher than they were. And the wind is a little bit stronger and you start to sink. Well, I would say to you again, look to Peter. Because what does Peter do when he starts to sink? He looks to Jesus and he says, Lord, save me. And Jesus does. That also describes the Christian life. Crying out to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's another interesting thing about this incident. The walking on water, that passage, that incident occurs in two Gospels. It occurs in Matthew 14 and in Mark 6. Now, the different Gospels are written from different perspectives. And Mark's Gospel is often called Peter's Gospel. There's a close relationship between Mark and Peter. And it's thought that Mark got most of his material from Peter talking to him. That's the way the Holy Spirit used to give most of the information. And Mark's gospel even sounds like Peter. You know, Peter, the guy rushing out headlong, pulling out his sword, always rushing ahead. Mark's gospel's like that too. It's like the three-minute version of a book. Immediately, go, and immediately, and then, immediately, and then, immediately, and then. It sounds like Peter. Well, in Matthew 14, all of this incident with the walking on water is described in great detail. But there's an interesting thing. In Mark 6, everything is described except the walking on water. Why is that? It's because Peter's also a humble man. He wants our focus to be on Jesus, not on him and what he did. The Holy Spirit records that incident for our edification, but not through Peter. It's his humility. We see a similar sort of thing in the transfiguration. He goes up and sees this glorious thing, and he's a little bit too eager Peter doesn't like silence. Are you like that at times? You're not sure what to say, but you really don't just want to sit there? And we can almost picture Peter in a nervous sort of way going, ooh, that was wonderful. Ooh, what should we do now? I know. Let's build some boots. Oh, okay. Um, How many boots? Um, How about three boots? One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you, Lord. What do you think, John? Is that good? Three boots. How big should the boots be? Right? And our Lord has to, again, focus Peter. Focus. Be quiet. It's through Peter that the Gentiles are brought into the church. We think of Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles, but it's in Acts 10, Peter dealing with Cornelius, that the Gentiles are brought into the church. This great progress of redemptive history. The church is now no longer just Jewish, but it is now Jews and Gentiles. It's a momentous event. And Peter is there. And just a little bit later, Peter's in a Gentile church. And some of the good old boys from Jerusalem come in. Peter is afraid they might not like him or they might ask him hard questions. And so he picks up his cafeteria tray and he sits at another table. (laughs) This great instrument of God stumbles. And Paul rebukes him to his face. Notice something else, though, from 
the pages of Scripture. That Peter takes the rebuke and is reconciled to Paul. We know this because at the end of 2 Peter, Peter describes those things that are kind of hard to understand that our beloved brother Paul has written. And you see, that's also a characteristic of Peter. Sometimes Paul is hard to understand. You remember that passage we had in Galatians about the two mountains and Hagar? and Wow. Peter's not. Peter's your meat and potatoes kind of guy. He's a pastor. This is who Peter is. He's not detached. This isn't a congressman writing off a form letter. Peter is where his audience is as well. Well, who is this audience? They are the pilgrims. They are the elect exiles, our text calls them. The elect exiles of the dispersion. So who are these people? Well, some commentators would say that they have to be Jews. Because this word that's used here, of the dispersion, is actually a technical term that some of you may know from history class. It's called the diaspora. It's a technical term for the the uh, scattering of the Jews out to the nations. So they look at that and they say, well, it's got to be Jews. Peter's the apostle to the Jews. They've got to all be Jews. But the interesting thing is, as you read through Peter's letter, it makes it hard to believe there are only Jews here. For example, in chapter 1 and verse 8, or excuse me, chapter 1 and verse 18, he, just, he says to them that they were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from their forefathers. That doesn't sound like a good Jewish boy's upbringing. You might say self-righteous ways, but not futile, not worthless, because part of the problem with Judaism was that it built on the superstructure of Scripture. You wouldn't call, for example, the sacrificial system futile. You might call it blown out of proportion. You might call it an opportunity for self-righteousness, but not that. And then in chapter 2 and verse 10, he writes to these people and he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. That doesn't really sound like Jews, does it? They sort of are the people of God, or were. When we look at that passage, we'll see that what's really happening is God's fashioning a new people, but this couldn't just be Jews. And then finally, in chapter 4 and verse 3, he says that the Gentiles are surprised that they won't go on to the level of drunkenness and passion that the Gentiles do. Now, why would the Gentiles be surprised if good Jewish Pharisees or boys who are grown up in the temple wouldn't go out with Gentiles? That doesn't make sense. Part of Jewish identity was to call Gentiles dogs and to keep away from them. So we think, at least I think from looking at this, that there were not just Jews there, there were Gentiles. But the other thing is, there likely were Jews there as well. Because we do have this technical term, the diaspora. And also, as we go through First Peter, we're going to see that First Peter has one of the most perverse kind of like per capita, but a little bit different, perverse Old Testament references in all the Bible. Old Testament is flung around like crazy by Peter. And so we think that there are Jews now who are understanding that. So what's the point? Why is that even important? It's important because it shows that this church is made up of people from different backgrounds. They ate different foods growing up. They dressed differently. They had different kinds of society. 
They probably grew up speaking different languages and now they speak a common language. And now they are bound together as one people that Peter writes to and the only thing that binds them together is the Lord Jesus Christ. How like our church that is. The church of the present day. We have brothers and sisters in China, in India, in Africa. We don't speak the same language. We don't wear the same clothes. We don't eat the same food. Even in America, we have people from all different forms of ethnic backgrounds. But what binds us together is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the significance. The other thing we know about these pilgrims, these elect exiles, is their daily life, where they were from. They're from Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's basically... Northern Turkey and Western Turkey. It's a huge area. Don't be thrown off by the funny names. It's about the size of California. It's a big area. And it's a very, very diverse area. You've got rich cities like Ephesus and little backwater places like Pontus. Pontus was a a province in Northern Turkey on the Black Sea. And Pontus was the favorite place for the emperors to exile people from Rome. Ovid, the poet, got in trouble with the emperor, Augustus, and he sent him to what was essentially the backwater of the world, Pontus. It's like being sent to Timbuktu. Very different kind of place. Very different kind of background. There were wealthy people. There were poor people. There were big cities. There were rural areas. (coughs) Peter is addressing people that have all kinds of different circumstances. But you'll notice that his solutions to them are one. He doesn't stop in the middle of his letter and say, well, you city folk, listen up now. Oh, okay, now it's time for the people out in the farms to listen. No, there's one solution for the Christian life regardless of the circumstances. This was also an area that was beset by relativism. What was difficult for the Christians there was the fact that they were trying to lead lives of biblical holiness with standards that they called Jesus Christ Lord, that they didn't go along with the latest religious fads that were coming in and out. Does that sound familiar? Well, it should. It sounds a lot like 21st century America. And the truth is, if the truth be told, modern America is much more like first century Rome than it is even 18th century America. 18th century America had a completely different worldview from modern America. But Rome in Jesus and Peter's day was much like ours. Divorce rates were high. Homosexuality was rampant. Relativism was on the rise. This is the place (coughs) in which these people live. I also want to recall to you that this area is a a cradle of Christianity, of the church. This is the area that Apollos came from in the Bible. This is an area, if you had a chance to sit through Steve's Sunday school class, where the three Cappadocian fathers who formulated the doctrine of the Trinity, Basil and the two Gregories, this is where they come from. This is an area that will produce giants for the church And now it's an area in trouble and difficulty. And their circumstances, the circumstances of these people are much like Peter's. They're a little bit schizophrenic. Notice what they're called. 
They're called the elect exiles. They're chosen, but they're scattered. They're pilgrims wandering of the dispersion, but they're chosen by the Father. They're a part of a family. You see, they're experiencing this kind of duality of being in the world, but not of the world. (coughs) They're scattered, which means that they are persecuted. We see this over and over again. Chapter 1, verse 6. That they are being tested by fire. They have various trials. Chapter 3, verses 15 and 16 describes how they are being need to be prepared to make a defense for those who attack them and ask them questions. Chapter 4, verses 12 through 17 describe suffering that they experience and fiery trials. <coughs> Chapter 5 and verse 9 says that they are experiencing the same kinds of sufferings as others are. They are persecuted. This is the difficulty of being scattered. Do you feel like that at times? You know, it seems like we think about the good old days when America was Christian. And now we think that we're just awash in a sea of muck. That's true. But there's something else that's important here. You see, they're not just scattered to be persecuted. They're like seeds scattered in a field. It's a wonderful opportunity for evangelism. Because they're all over Asia. Everywhere you look, there are Christians. And that should encourage us as well when we feel scattered and difficult. When we look about our tiny band and we say, what can we do in a place as big as Houston? And the answer is, by God's grace, an awful lot. Because we're scattered abroad. And we hope to be further scattered abroad. It's my prayer that in 10 years we'll be scattered abroad with a church in the north and a church out west and another church in the south. I hope to be scattered abroad, Christ church broadly speaking, five, tenfold over years to come. To be seed for evangelism. You see, sometimes there's a joke that goes around the internet. It's that there's a state that's going to secede from the union and become a place where only Christians can live. Sometimes in these spam emails it's New Hampshire, sometimes it's South Carolina. You may have seen these. And on one level we look at it and we say, ooh, that would be nice. Don't have to worry about people blaspheming the Lord's name in front of me. Don't have to worry about how people will dress. Maybe I can find more support. But at the same time, that's not how the church is to function. The church isn't to build a castle, build a big wall, and build a moat and hope it can wait it out. No. The church is on the offense, breaking down the gates of hell, scattered abroad throughout the world. And that's what these people had, and that's an advantage that they had. And Peter describes that for them. Because a lot of what Peter tells them is how they can live lives of evangelism. Peter is sort of the forerunner of deed evangelism, describing for them how they should live. These are their circumstances. They are chosen by the Father. And they are not to hide. They are to be a distinct community. If you look at chapter 2, verse 12, that they are to keep their conduct honorable among the Gentiles so that others will see them and glorify God. They are to be the proverbial city on a hill. Verse 15 of chapter 2, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Verse 20, For what credit is it 
if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure. But when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You see, they are to be a people that others see and wonder, why are they like that? That's the kind of people that we need to be. Others see us and say, why are we like that? These are the people. Now, in conclusion, the big picture of why Peter's writing this book, the purpose, the theme. The first of these things is hope. It occurs over and over and over again throughout this letter. Chapter 1, verse 3, they are born again to a living hope. Chapter 1, verse 13, to set your minds on the hope of the grace that will come. Chapter 1, verse 21, we are raised from the dead so that, excuse me, Jesus is raised from the dead so that your faith and hope are in God. Chapter 3, verse 5, in the advice to husbands and wives, this is how wives hope. Chapter 3, verse 15, over and over again, Peter is describing hope for them. Why is he describing hope? Very briefly, two things. The first is he wants to give them hope for their lives because they're in difficult situations and he wants to show them that they can have hope. This first part of 1 Peter 1 that we're going to look at is pound for pound the most theologically packed section of the New Testament. It's so theological that some commentators use it as proof that Peter never wrote it because they say it's too Pauline. You see, Peter knows they need hope in their difficult circumstances, and he responds by giving them doctrine, by teaching them about the salvation that they have. This is the way of the New Testament. We saw it in Galatians. You see it in Romans, the first 11 chapters. Our doctrine, then 12 and following, this is what you do. Colossians, the first two chapters, our doctrine, the last two, this is what you do. Ephesians, 1 through 3, doctrine. Four through six, this is what you do. Peter begins there. But the second thing about hope is it's not just hope for them in their difficult circumstances. Peter knows that they are the hope of the world in bringing the gospel. And one of the things that I want you to really keep in your mind as we go through the central portion of this letter is that Peter is describing how you can make every area of your life an arena for the gospel. You know what an arena is? It's a big stadium where someone sings or goes on stage or acts or does something and everyone can see. What Peter says is, your marriage is an arena for the gospel to be seen. The way you treat your children is an arena for the gospel. The way you act at work is a place for the gospel to be seen. The way you treat the government is a place for the gospel to be seen. And he's going to give encouragement in this. The second purpose is maturity. He wants these believers to be mature disciples in Jesus Christ. That's something we should be interested in. It's in our mission statement. He wants maturity. He wants maturity of belief. He wants them to have great faith. But he also wants maturity of action. He's describing ways for them to be obedient. And that's also the Christian life. If anyone tells you all you need to do is memorize these facts, they're only telling you half the story. If anyone tells you all you need to do is do these things and it doesn't matter what you believe, they're only telling you half the story. Peter gives us the whole story. And finally, 
His purpose is to give them and us patience in difficulties. Because we need it. We need patience to put up with people who annoy us, and persecute us, and pick on us. We also need other people to have patience with us. And that's what Peter's saying. He's saying, I know the difficulties you're going through. I'm there myself. Persevere. God has a bigger purpose in mind. And he's encouraging and comforting them. This is why Peter wrote this letter. And so, beginning next week, we're going to begin to dive into some of the greatest descriptions of salvation in all of the Bible. The first 12 12 verses of 1 Peter 1 are unbelievable. And Peter is doing this, remember, not to give a dissertation, not to show off what he learned at the feet of Jesus, but to provide pastoral comfort for his people. And so, let us listen to Peter, because this is not just the good words of a wise fisherman. It's the very word of God, who himself seeks our hope, our maturity in Jesus Christ, and our patience and comfort in difficulties. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with this great letter from the Apostle Peter. We pray, O Lord, that you would comfort and guide us through it, that we might be servants of the living God who hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and in all that he has done. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you.